Welcome to another Salvation by Grace midweek message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. Remember to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. Now, here's our pastor and teacher, Jim McClarty. Even though we are technically in a study of 2 Kings, we reached the point where the prophet Jeremiah had most of his activity and his prophecies of the coming incursion of Babylon and Nebuchadnezzar. And so we veered off into Jeremiah for a little while. And two weeks ago, we spent the whole night in Jeremiah. And we're going to do that again tonight. And we may do that for a couple more weeks because this is the period of time in the final kings of Judah, the southern kingdom, that Jeremiah has most of his prophetic activity. Last week, Tom preached, and I appreciate that very much, that he stood here and was always willing to do that. And I don't like the idea that the church would ever close its doors just because I'm not there. So I very much appreciate that there are men who can step up. Two weeks ago, we were in Jeremiah 31, which is where we're going to start tonight. We stopped at Jeremiah 31, verse 14. So we're going to start tonight in verse 15. It's hard to estimate the amount of books I've read, sermons I've heard, papers that I've seen that fail to really have a truly biblical Old Testament theology. There are churches, there are denominations like the Church of Christ, which call themselves New Testament churches, which is just a way of admitting that they they really don't pay enough attention to the Old Testament. Two weeks ago, I said that this study in the Old Testament is not only for the purpose of getting our Israelology right, but for the purpose of getting our Christianity right. There seems to be a lack of understanding that the New Testament writers, who were predominantly Jewish, that their writing and their proofs that Jesus was the Messiah and the basis for Christian doctrine was all found in the Scriptures, the Old Testament. And that lack of Old Testament understanding is what leads to a certain amount of New Testament confusion or, at very least, a New Testament light. Can I call it that? Mm -hmm. People who are saying things that are essentially true, but the broader depth of their understanding is limited by their failure to understand the Old Testament. And that's just obvious. For instance, when people say that the church is now true Israel, they are just demonstrating that they haven't spent enough time really looking at, reading, and studying their Old Testament, like the things that we're going to see tonight. Now, this is not just my way of thinking, even though it is my way of thinking, but for a word like Israel that has such a long-standing meaning and definition— For it to suddenly, in the New Testament, change its meaning and for it to no longer mean a national group of people, descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, people who have the land promise, the people of God on planet Earth in the Old Testament, for it to no longer mean that, but to now mean the blood-bought saints in Christ who constitute the church well, then I think that it would be incumbent on somebody in the New Testament to say so. Somebody would have to tell us that. We can't just conclude it. We can't just assume it. And way too many people these days are saying it's implied in the New Testament. When you see things like they're not all Israel that are of Israel, or you read Paul in Galatians talking about the Israel of God, then they make the leap to, well, that means that the church is now Israel. But those are simply implications that can also be fully understood in a completely different way. And if it's true that there is a completely legitimate 
contextual argument for a different understanding of the verses on which you are assuming something, then that's a really dodgy way to do your theology. So I contend again that if Israel becomes the church in the New Testament, somebody in the New Testament would have to say that. And you can search in vain. Read all the New Testament over and over again, and you won't find any single author make that argument. And in fact, I would argue that in Romans 9, 10, and 11, that Paul argues for the consistency and the continuity of historic Israel. And when you get to the book of Revelation and you see the new Jerusalem coming down, built on the foundations of the 12 prophets, and, the, and then over each of the gates is written the name of the 12 tribes of Israel, that's clearly not the church. That's obvious that it's historic, tribal, national Israel. So the definition for the word Israel has not changed anywhere in the New Testament. And if the definition of the word has not changed, then I argue that it is utterly impossible to say, when you see the word Israel in the New Testament, think church. It means church. Because somebody would have to say that. And they don't. And I hope that what you've seen in this study of Old Testament prophets is that they all promise that there's going to be a restoration of Israel, a regathering of Israel, and that God's promises to national Israel are, to use Paul's words, without repentance. That once God has made a promise, that's it. It's good. Otherwise, as I keep contending, you've heard this argument often enough, but if you can prove that God made promises to a national group of people who he called his people, who he called his wife, who he called his chosen, his elect, if he can then at the end of that say, never mind, my affection for you has now migrated to a group of people you know nothing about, Gentile people who will later make up the church, and now all my affection is on them, and my election is of them, and my long-suffering and my everlasting love is on them. The same way that I promised it to you and took it away from you, I can promise it to them and then take it away from them. You really have no security. You really have nothing to rest yourself on if in fact God is that capricious, if God can change what he has everlastingly promised, well, then you've got nothing to hang on to. And so as we're looking at these Old Testament passages, like tonight, we're going to look at the New Covenant and the Davidic Covenant. And God is going to say through Jeremiah that he's faithful to those promises, and he's going to do those things, and he even casts it out into the future, God will accomplish these things. And if you can come away from tonight and what we're going to look at tonight, if you can come away with the conclusion, well, then the church is Israel, well, then I'm going to say it all again. We'll start at the beginning and say it again because you can't possibly conclude that from what Jeremiah is saying. Now, here's the really important historic context into which you have to understand the new covenant. God has made a covenant with Israel at Mount Sinai, a conditional covenant. Which covenant they broke repeatedly and constantly. And as we read through 1 and 2 Kings, we saw all the ways that Israel broke that covenant. And so finally, God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do when he established the old covenant. When he established the covenant at Sinai, he said, if you don't do it, this is what I will do. I'm going to punish you. I'm going to take you out of your land, bring your enemies against you. And now God is doing exactly what he said he was going to do because they broke the covenant. And so he is punishing them and he is bringing his wrath, his fury against them, and he is using the surrounding nations, in particular the Assyrian 
nation and the uh, and Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians. He's using them in particular to punish his people and take them out of their land, which he has promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because they broke the covenant. And he's going to admit that. So this is the juncture of history in which we find ourselves, where God has made a covenant with Israel that he imposed on Israel. Israel had no choice. It was a conditional covenant, and they broke it, and now God is doing what he said he was going to do, and he is punishing them for the breaking of that covenant. But that's not the end of the story. Again, far too many people who have an underdeveloped understanding of what the Old Testament really says get to the point of God punishes Israel, and then they say, and that's it. God's done with Israel because they broke the covenant. God knows that they broke the covenant, but he also knows that these are the people he has said, I've set my everlasting love on you. These are the people who he has called his elect. These are his chosen people who also, though they have broken the conditional covenant at Mount Sinai, they still have the unconditional Abrahamic covenant. They still have the unconditional Davidic covenant. And so what is God going to do about that? Those things, being unconditional, still have lasting effect. So what does God do? Since they broke the old covenant... He knows he can't go back to that old covenant, which is now broken, which has now been shattered. The terms of it no longer stand between him and Israel. What does he do? He makes a new covenant. And who does he make the new covenant with? It's very specific. The house of Israel, the house of Judah. Why the house of Israel and the house of Judah? Because they're the ones that broke the old covenant. Jeff, is the new covenant qualitatively new to you? Well, yeah. No. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have an old covenant. He wants to know if that's a trick question. Yeah. If it's new to me, it is. I didn't have an old covenant. You didn't have an old covenant. Yeah, it's new to you in that you didn't have anything else. But I would argue that in Israel's case at least, and I'm going to argue that in our case as Gentiles, what we call the new covenant to identify it is just simply the covenant. That's our covenant. But to Israel, who were actually under an old covenant, they can now be under a qualitatively new covenant, which is not, get this right, which is not a rubber stamp of the old covenant. It's qualitatively new. It's not just saying, well, okay, you broke the old covenant. Let's reestablish the old covenant. They've already proven that they can't keep the old covenant. They've already proven that under the old covenant of rules and regulations, they're going to fail. Therefore, God has to make a new covenant with them that is unconditional and in which God does for them everything they can't do. Qualitatively different. And again, because people don't seem to have a fully orbed Old Testament theology, they end up reading the New Covenant and somehow say that it's just a rubber stamp of the old. But when Jesus said things like at the Sermon on the Mount, when he said, you've heard it said, and then he would quote the law. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. And then he would say, but I say, well, that's because he's the new lawgiver. And he's saying, you've heard Moses said this, but I say this. And in that context, the this was if your brother smites you on the one cheek, give him the other cheek. Now, how you get from an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, how you get as an interpretive scheme, turn the other cheek? I have no idea, unless you admit that Jesus was saying the opposite of what the law says. Because Moses says this, but I say this because he's making a qualitatively new covenant. You get it? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Okay. Honestly, I think the old covenant was easier to keep, and no human was capable of keeping it. Yeah. But the new covenant doesn't require the same keeping that the old did, because it's been kept. Exactly right. The old covenant says, do and live. The new covenant says, it's been done, live. 
That's, that's qualitatively different. The old covenant has a whole set of rules and regulations and 613 ordinances and the Ten Commandments, and it's just all do, 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 and a priesthood and Levites and, and temple worship. and. Don't forget the thousands upon thousands, if not millions, of sacrifices. Oh, and sacrifice, 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 the ever flowing blood out of the temple and the new testament the new covenant has none of that so it's it's qualitatively different is all i'm driving at and yet there are people who seem to interfold the two into each other and think that they're essentially the same and that's a failure to understand the new testament that's a failure to understand the old testament okay both those sentences were true yeah So let's start at Jeremiah 31, verse 15. Okay, that was the introduction. Now we can start reading. Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, if that sounds familiar, in Matthew 2, 18 you can find Matthew applying that passage to Herod's slaughter of the innocent children. And so that is even prophetic of what is going to happen to the children of Israel in the time that Messiah comes. And so Matthew draws that connection so we know what the interpretation of that verse is. Verse 16, and thus says the Lord, restrain your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears. For your work shall be rewarded, declares the Lord. And they shall return from the land of the enemy. And there is hope for your future, declares the Lord. And your children shall return to their own territory. I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. Now, who is Ephraim? That's the northern tribes. That's Israel that's in the Assyrian captivity. Remember that it's Ephraim in particular that has the land promise, the land inheritance, the uh, inheritance of the firstborn. The firstborn promise was all given to Ephraim out of all the 12 tribes. So interesting that God would specifically say, I have surely heard Ephraim grieving. And this is what they say. They say, thou hast chastised me, and I was chastised, like an untrained calf. So bring me back, that I may be restored, for thou art the Lord my God. For after I returned back, I repented. And after I was instructed, I smote on my thigh. I was ashamed and also humiliated because I bore the reproach of my youth. Okay, at the point that Jeremiah is saying this, was that what Israel was doing? No. They were not repenting. They were not crying out to God to restore them. But the day is coming when they are going to not only see God restore them, they're going to see, according to Zechariah, they're going to see Christ return touch the Mount of Olives, it's going to split in half, and they're going to see him whom they've pierced, and they're going to weep over him like a mother weeps over her only child. And so the promise is that Ephraim is going to turn back. They're going to repent, but they're going to be brought back to the land that they had been promised. Verse 20, now listen to God talk about Ephraim. Remember, this is Ephraim who was sent into the Assyrian captivity because they were so bad. He had called them all kinds of names. He had even offered them a bill of divorcement. He wanted nothing more to do with them. He sent them out of their land into the Assyrian captivity where they have been scattered to this very day. What does God say about them? Verse 20, is Ephraim my dear son? Is he a delightful child? Indeed, as often as I have spoken against him, I certainly still remember him. And therefore, my heart yearns for him. I will surely have mercy on him, declares the Lord. Okay, so now where's the fulfillment of that? 
to this very day, Ephraim, the northern tribes are scattered. Ever since the Assyrian captivity, they have not come back into their land. They have not reestablished their worship of God in the land of Canaan. None of this has come true, and yet God says that those people who he had to reproach, who he had to punish, are a delightful child to him. He still remembers them. His heart yearns for them, and he will surely have mercy on them. So what are we going to say? Well, here's what we're going to say. We're going to say that God delights in Israel and that as often as he's spoken against them, he will still remember them and that his heart yearns for them and that he will surely have mercy on them. You can't say anything else and be biblical. If you say something else like, okay, that promise now applies to the church in some vague spiritual way. Well, then you have to ask, when did the church ever go into the Assyrian captivity? And, and when, importantly, did God ever speak against his church? Because he said right here, as often as I've spoken against him. So we have a lot of problems interpreting this any other way than God is speaking directly to Israel. Verse 21, set up for yourself road marks. Place for yourself guideposts. Direct your mind to the highway. What God is getting at here is remember the way you came because that's the way you're going back. So set up guideposts for yourself. Direct your mind to the highway, the way in which you went, and return, O virgin of Israel, return to these your cities. Now, he's not talking just about Judah here. It's true that under the Medo-Persian kings who then conquer Babylon, that Cyrus does allow that any of the Jews that want to can go back and rebuild the walls and they can rebuild the temple after it's been destroyed by Babylon. Okay, but that's just the southern kingdom. That's the Jews returning to Jerusalem to restore the temple, but that is not Israel, that is not Ephraim. And yet here's God saying that Ephraim, who he calls a virgin of Israel, is going to return to their cities. Okay, so now let's apply that to the church. Okay, Thaddeus, which cities does the church need to go back to? Stumped you. Yeah, you, you can't think of any. How does that apply to the church? Go back to your cities. And, and notice the word back. That means these were cities they were once in. And then they were driven out. How long will you go here and there? How long are you going to wander? How long will you go here and there, O oh, faithless daughter? Now he calls them a daughter. For the Lord has created a new thing in the earth. A woman will encompass a man. Now, there are lots of commentaries you can read about that verse because it is a fairly vague verse among the Catholics. They like to take that verse out of context and say that that's talking about the Virgin Mary, that she was going to encompass Jesus in her womb. And the word, the Hebrew word, does mean to encircle, to encompass the interpretation of that that I kind of lean toward is that within this immediate context, the woman is the faithless daughter, Israel. And the man, God always represents himself as a male figure, that the time is coming when Israel, the faithless daughter, is going to encircle, encompass their God and look toward their God. That's in keeping with the whole context of what we see here, but I think we can just say, Okay, that's a vague statement. Verse 23, here's an unvague statement. Is unvague a word? It is now. It is now. I've just used it in a sentence. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, once again, they will speak this word in the land of Judah and in its cities when I restore their fortunes. They will say these words, the Lord bless you, O abode of righteousness, O holy hill. So they are going to restore Judah. They're going to restore Jerusalem. That's the holy hill. 
And they are going to speak blessings to the holy hill yet again. Verse 24, and Judah and all its cities will dwell together in it. The farmer and they that go about with flocks. For I satisfy the weary ones and refresh everyone who languishes. At this then, Jeremiah says, I awoke and I looked and my sleep was pleasant to me. So apparently that entire vision he received in the night. Verse 27, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. When God first spoke to Abraham, gave him what we classically call the Abrahamic covenant, one of the first promises God made to him, not only did he change his name, but he said, your descendants are going to be so numerous that if you could count the stars or if you could count the sands of the seashore, that that's how numerous your descendants are going to be. So here's God picking it up again and saying, the days are coming when I'm going to sow the house of Israel, the house of Judah specifically, the descendants of Abraham. I'm going to sow them with the seed of man and with the seed of beast. They're going to be plentiful. They're going to be innumerable. They're going to be a large company of people. Verse 28, and it will come about that the same way that I watched over them to pluck them up, to break them down, to overthrow, to destroy, and to bring disaster, all of which God did. And the same way that I did all that, I will watch over them to build them and to plant them, declares the Lord. Okay, here you have a solid promise from God. And the first part of the promise is physically, historically, provably accurate. It actually happened. Israel who were in their land actually were driven out. Israel who were once a free and a mighty nation where even the queen of Sheba had to come and see the glory of Solomon. Once upon a time they were a great and a grand nation and now here they are being delivered into slavery in Assyria and in Babylon. So we know for a fact there are cuneiform writings that prove that Israel was in those areas of the world. Okay, so that's provably historically true. What about the second half of the sentence? Because the first half of the sentence is obviously demonstrably, provably true. What about the second half? The second half is, I'm going to watch over you to build and to plant, declares the Lord. Who is it he's going to look over to plant and to build? The house of Israel and the house of Judah. It says so. There's no way to make that the church. Even if you can somehow make the fairly tenuous argument that the church is now Israel, how do you make the church Judah? You can't. The Judahites are still all over the place, all over the world. It's not that hard to find Jewish temples. It's not that hard to find Jewish people. They are scattered all over the world. Are they the church? No, they're not. They're Judah. They're the house of Judah. And God is going to restore them and plant them in the exact same way. The house of Israel is not the church. In fact, I think the very fact that God specifically says the house of. Or let's put it this way. Why can't my daughter Megan be queen of England? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Why can't she? Because the lineage of the House of Windsor is where the queens and kings come from in England, specifically from the House of Windsor. Before that, the House of Tudor, the House of, that means the lineage of the people who have the genealogical connection to that particular family group. Okay, here we have the House of Israel, the House of Judah. That means those people with that genealogy, with that particular family group. And there's simply no way to say the people of that family group constitute the New Testament church. That's just an enormous leap in logic. So if we've learned anything tonight, we've learned that Meghan will never be queen of England. I know. I'm slaughtering your dreams. I know. There you go. You're still a, a child of the king. Well done. So the same way that I 
watched over them to pluck up, to break down, to overthrow, to destroy, to bring disaster. So I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. In those days, when I do that, when I build them, when I plant them, in those days, they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. It's an old Hebraism that means that the sins of the fathers were passed down generation to generation to generation. And the things that the fathers did, like eat sour grapes, is the example here, would be passed down to their children and their grandchildren so that even their teeth were set on edge. Have you ever eaten anything really sour? Mm. A lemon or sour grapes or something like that? That's, that's the face you make. Or a persimmon, then immediately you kind of get that, your teeth are set on edge. Okay, well, that's the point. But no longer are the sins of the fathers going to be handed down to the children. That's the important thing. No longer are the fathers going to eat the sour grapes and then the children's teeth are set on edge. What the fathers did is no longer going to matter. God's going to be gracious to the children. The fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. They're never going to say that anymore. But verse 30, but everyone will die for his own iniquity. Each man who eats the sour grapes, his teeth will be set on edge. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. Okay, there's the contrast. That's why my introductory comments really tried to create the contrast between the old and the new covenant, because that's exactly what God says. The old covenant, the Sinai covenant, is the covenant that God made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah when he took them by the hand to take them out of Egypt. Which covenant, he says, they broke. Okay, so that's a broken covenant. So if I'm going to restore them, if I'm going to build and plant them, I can't do it via that covenant because that's a broken covenant. So what's he going to do? I'm going to make a new covenant with them. And it's not like the covenant that I made with their fathers. It's qualitatively new. Verse 33, but this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Okay, so big difference. Under the old covenant, the law of God was written on tablets of stone and were written down by Moses and put into and kept with the Ark of the Covenant named the Ark of the Covenant because that's what carried the covenant around. And so the words of the covenant written on the tables of the covenant, put into the Ark of the Covenant, that was always external to people. They could look at it, they could read it, they just couldn't find the ability to do it because it was external to them. How many of you sped today? <laughs> Your hand shot right up. Okay. Did you know when you were speeding that you were speeding? Uh-huh. Yeah, of course. Of course you knew. Speed limit 35. I'm doing 50. That's just the way it goes. I got places to be. Dig me. I'm important. I got to go. Well, why? Because that rule of 30 is external to you. It doesn't have the ability to actually make you do what it says. It can only say, this is the law. The law says, don't do that. But you, you're going to do it because it doesn't have the ability to convince you. So you, you're lawbreakers by nature. You break the law all the time. You know you shouldn't lie. You know you shouldn't steal. You know you should And yet, over the course of our lives, we can think of many ways that we have broken the law because we are lawbreakers by nature. And the law doesn't have the ability to help us do it. It can only stand there unchanged and say, I'm the law. What it can't do 
is bend down to help you. I got a ticket recently for not having a seatbelt on, right here in Smyrna. I wear my seatbelt all the time now. And I actually had had my seatbelt on, took it off, went into the bank, got back in my car, made a right turn, realized I was going the wrong way, made a U-turn, cop right on my tail. He says, that was an illegal U-turn. I said, no, that was a a legal left turn because I actually turned into a parking lot and then pulled back out of it. I said, no, that was a legal left. And he said, well... And then he said, oh, you don't have your seatbelt on. And he wrote me up for the seatbelt because he had stopped me. And as long as he had stopped me, he had to get me on something. And you know what? He was right. I didn't have a seatbelt on. I got a seatbelt ticket. I went immediately to the courthouse. I paid the $15 or whatever it was, 20 bucks or whatever. But I realized in that moment, the law says every time I get in my car that I have to wear my seatbelt. That's what the law says. What the law can't do, two things. The law can't get in my car and belt me in. That's up to me. And secondly, it couldn't bend to help me. It could only condemn me. It could only say, you're wrong. And that's all the law of Sinai could do. All it could do for Israel was say, you're wrong. And you're wrong again. And you're wrong right there. And you broke that. But it couldn't ever bend to help. It could only condemn So having broken it, God is going to make a new covenant wherein that law, which is a good and a righteous and a holy law, Paul certainly argues that, Romans 7, it's a perfectly good and holy and righteous law. The problem's me. I can't do it. And so God says, now I'm going to take that law and not write it on tablets of stone external to them. I'm going to write it on their hearts internal to them. It's going to change them from within. And they're going to know the will of God and they're going to desire to do the will of God because the law will be within them. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel in those days. I will put my law within them. On their heart I will write it. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. When God says this shall happen, do you think there's any chance that it won't? No, there's no chance that that's not going to happen. Are the house of Israel and the house of Judah going to be the people of God? Yes. Absolutely. I will be their God. They shall be my people and they shall not teach again. Each man his neighbor and each man his brother saying, know the Lord for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So for all the folks who are out there saying, well, the reason that God is so done with Israel is because they've broken the covenant. And because they've broken the covenant, that serious wound that they have now means that God is no longer interested in them or redeeming them. And so he's turned his attention to the church. They are ignoring the fact that God says, I know that. I know they broke my covenant. I know they've sinned against me. But the same way that God is going to forgive you of your sin, which you desperately need and desire, he says right here, I'm going to forgive Israel for their sin. And the failure to understand that is a failure to have a fully orbed New Testament theology. I will forgive their iniquity, their sin I will remember no more. Thus says the Lord, who gives the sun for light by day, and the fixed order of the moon and the stars for light by night, who stirs up the sea so that its waves roar. The Lord of hosts is his name. If this fixed order ever departs from before me, declares the Lord, then the offspring of Israel also shall cease from being a nation before me forever. So I got to challenge the folks out there again who say Israel is the church. Are you arguing that the fixed order of the moon and the stars and the seas and the waves roaring, have you said that those have ceased? Because they would have to for God to ever give up on Israel. But they haven't. The waves are still rolling. The surfers are still out there surfing. The moon is up right now, and in the morning the sun's coming up. 
the fixed order of day and night and sunlight and moon and stars, that's all still working. Therefore, God says, well, then Israel's going to continue to be a nation before me. Verse 37, thus says the Lord, if the heavens above can be measured and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I will also cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Okay, let's test it. Who wants to go measure space? Because men think they're very clever right now. Scientists are very big. Oh, we've got these gigantic telescopes. We've got whole arrays of telescopes. And we're sending all of these waves out into space, microwaves bouncing off the planets and systems. And they've come back and said, well, there's billions of galaxies. Well, how big are the galaxies? We don't know. They look like a star from here. And there's billions of them, apparently. We have no idea how big space is. God knew we'd never know that. He says, if you can search out the heavens above, or if you can get to the foundations of the earth. Has anybody gotten to the middle of the earth? That was a big movie, Journey to the Center of the Earth. Oh, apparently if you get down there, there's dinosaurs. Yeah, and lava, and mole men, and, you know, you, you, there's all kinds of creatures down there in the center of the earth. The point being, nobody's ever searched out the foundations of the earth, but God knows them. If the heavens above can be measured, and the foundations of the earth searched out below, then I'm going to cast off all the offspring of Israel for all that they have done, declares the Lord. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when the city shall be rebuilt for the Lord from the tower of Hananel to the corner gate, and the measuring line shall go out farther straight ahead to the hill Garib, and then it will turn to Goa, and the whole valley of the dead bodies and of the ashes and all the fields as far as the brook Kidron to the corner of the horse gate toward the east shall all be, even if you don't know all those geographic locations, even if you don't have a map in front of you so you don't know all the area he's talking about, he's talking about areas beyond Jerusalem. He's talking about the whole of it. All you need to know about it is it will all be holy to the Lord. Now, at the time that he's saying this, Babylon's coming, Nebuchadnezzar's coming. Not only has the temple been profaned over and over again, not only has Jerusalem been profaned with all the foreign gods and foreign worship, but God, at that very moment in time, when all of that desecration of Jerusalem is happening, at that very moment, he says, but at some point, Jerusalem from one end to the other, to the whole of it, the whole valley, the dead bodies, the, the entire area is all going to be holy to me. Well, that hasn't happened yet. They're still arguing about it over there now. Trump's talking about whether or not he's going to put the uh, American embassy in Jerusalem. They're still arguing about whether Jerusalem's the capital of Israel. There's no holiness of the Lord going on there, but it's going to, according to this prophecy. And it shall not be plucked up or overthrown anymore forever. Are there three covenants? Pardon me? Is it the old covenant, the new covenant, and then the covenant that we're in? No, I would say that we are in the new covenant at this very moment, but... Since you said, are there three covenants, let me say, yes, let's look at one more. Turn to chapter 33. Chapter 33, starting at verse 14. We're going to blame Jennifer for this one. <laughs> How often has God said, behold, days are coming. Here he goes again, starting at verse 14, Jeremiah 33. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How many times does God have to say this? Consistent. Pardon me? Pretty consistent. It's very, very consistent, isn't it? We hear it repeated in the new. You hear it repeated in the new. And that's why I think it's just so genuinely important that Hebrews 8, a Hebrew writing to Hebrews, recites the new covenant from Jeremiah 31 verbatim. 
doesn't change anything about it because he's saying to them, this is the covenant by which you're being saved now, the new covenant. When Jesus was at the Last Supper and he picked up the cup of wine after he'd eaten, he said, take drink. This is the cup of the new testament in my blood, the new covenant in my blood. He was establishing the new covenant, and it was a new covenant not of the blood of goats and bulls and Mount Sinai and sacrifices and all of that. It was the new covenant in his blood, his sacrifice. So Paul would argue that a covenant, a testament, goes into effect when a man dies, which is true of all of us. I have a will and testament. Megan has a copy of my last will and testament. She also has power of attorney. I'm scared daily. (laughs) But my will and testament doesn't go into effect till I die. So Paul would pick that. Well, it's not even Paul. The writer of Hebrews, who I kind of think is Paul, argues that the new covenant went into effect at Christ's death because that's when a testament goes into effect. So we even know when the new covenant was established. It was established by Christ at Calvary. So you're right, it's very, very consistent, even in the New Testament. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will fulfill the good word which I have spoken concerning the house of Israel and the house of Judah. In those days and at that time, I will cause a righteous branch of David to spring forth, and he shall execute justice and righteousness on the earth. There's Christ. He is the righteous branch of David who God is going to raise up. For what reason? Look at verse 16. When he executes justice and righteousness on the earth in those days, Judah shall be saved, and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which Jerusalem shall be called. Shall be called, the Lord is our righteousness. Okay, so that changes it. That's the new covenant. The old covenant said our righteousness is found in the keeping of the law. As long as we do all the dictates of the law, then we can find our righteousness in the law. But eventually, when Jerusalem is saved, when they look on him whom they have pierced, when they are converted from the inside out instead of being dictated to from the outside, When that change happens and the law of God is written on their hearts at that time, then Jerusalem will be called the Lord is our righteousness. So no longer are they going to be trying to establish their own righteousness. This is what Paul argues about throughout the New Testament, that the Jews seeking their own righteousness went about to establish their righteousness by the law. And then he says, but righteousness comes By faith in Christ. Righteousness comes through faith in the finished work of Christ. And here that's going to be the case for all of Judah. Do you get it? Mm -hmm. Pretty consistent, eh, Jeff? Mm -hmm. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. By the way, do you see now where Paul would get it in Romans 11? When he would say that after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel will be saved. That's where people get mixed up because it's saying, oh, well, now the church is, oh, now all Israel because of the church. Exactly. The church is Israel, so all the church is saved, and in that way all Israel is saved. But all Paul is doing is quoting from the prophets, and that's why I keep saying that it's the failure to have a fully orbed understanding of the Old Testament and those promises that leads to this kind of underwhelming understanding of the New Testament. And the only way that you can come to that church-Israel replacement kind of conclusion is if you don't know things like this. In those days, Judah shall be saved. Paul says, in those days, all Israel will be saved. It's the same thing. The language didn't change, and the definitions didn't change. It's consistent, one book, one author, one spirit, one God, one Savior. He's talking about his people, Israel, at this point. In those days, Judah shall be saved and Jerusalem shall dwell in safety. And this is the name by which she shall be called. The Lord is our righteousness. 
For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. Where did he say that? In the Davidic covenant. And that's an unconditional covenant. So here Jeremiah is saying to Israel, who are in this scattered state in the Assyrian captivity, Judah is going into the Babylonian captivity. It looks like they are finished as a nation. And God reminds them through Jeremiah, you're going to have a promised king because God who cannot go back on his word has promised you that David's never going to lack a man to sit on the throne over Israel. And notice at that point, he doesn't just say Judah. It's national Israel. It's all 12 tribes. David was the last king to rule successfully over all 12 tribes of Israel, which is why it is said that Jesus is going to sit on the throne of David because the throne of David rules Israel. And Jesus is going to rule Israel. But there's simply no way to say that the throne that Jesus currently is sitting on at the right hand of God is somehow the throne of David. Because David never ruled from heaven. David ruled on earth, in the Middle East, in the promised land, over the 12 tribes of Israel. And that's what Jesus is going to do. Here it's promised again. For thus says the Lord, David shall never lack a man to sit on the throne of the house of Israel. And the Levitical priests shall never lack a man before me to offer burnt offerings, to burn grain offerings, and to prepare sacrifices continually. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah saying, thus says the Lord, if you can break my covenant... For the day and my covenant for the night, so that day and night will not be at their appointed time, then my covenant may also be broken with David, my servant, that he shall not have a son to reign on his throne and with the Levitical priests, my ministers. As the hosts of heaven cannot be counted and the sands of the sea cannot be measured, that's directly from the Abrahamic covenant. The same way that you cannot count the hosts of heaven or the sands of the sea, so I will multiply the descendants of David, my servant, and the Levites who minister to me. And the word of the Lord came to Jeremiah, saying, Have you not observed what this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord chose, that's the house of Israel and the house of Judah, those families, God has rejected them. That's what the peoples are all saying. By the way, that's what the church is saying today. That God has abandoned those people that he foreknew. Which is why Paul would bring that question up. Has God abandoned the people that he foreknew? His answer is, God forbid. That would never happen. So here's God bringing that up and saying, look, the peoples of the nations, the Gentiles are saying, the two families which the Lord chose, he's rejected them. And thus they despise my people. And no longer are they a nation in their, the people's, sights. That's what's happening right now. You want to see how accurate the Bible is? What are people saying about Israel right now? God's done with them. The Middle Eastern nations want to wipe them off the map. They are the, the very seat where if World War III breaks out, it seems that it's going to break out in the Middle East, all revolving around Jerusalem. And God predicted that here, that the Gentiles are going to someday say, God chose those two families, and then he abandoned them. You know, there are serious atheists out there, serious critics of the Bible, who seem in many ways to be more Old Testament adept than so many of our New Testament preaching friends. Because they read this stuff, and they say, look, God made this promise to Israel, and he hasn't done it. They at least take God at his word, or at least they say the Bible says God made these promises, and he hasn't done it, because the state of national Israel at this moment is exactly like it's described right here. And the critic of the Bible is quick to say, well, see, God turned his back on the very people that he chose, on the very people that he redeemed out of Egypt, on the very people that he set his everlasting love on, those people he has utterly abandoned. And they use that as evidence that the Bible's not true. 
Well, I, I say the Bible's completely and utterly true. He just hasn't done it yet. The fact that it's been a few thousand years? So what? That's a drop in the bucket for God. I use this example a lot. I use it once more tonight. I'll let you go. How many people in this room believe that Jesus is coming back? I better see every hand in here. All right. Otherwise, we've got to take you out back and burn you at a stake or something. So tar and feathering is not good enough for you. We all believe that Jesus is coming back. How long ago did he leave and say he'd be back? 2,000 years or more. More than 2,000 years. Does that dampen our enthusiasm for his return? No, not in any way. Generations of humans have come and gone on planet Earth anticipating the return of Christ, and he did not come back. Does that change anything? No. He's still going to come back. He's going to come back someday because he said he's going to. Okay, so let's add another 1,000 years. Vague, big round numbers. It's actually more like 2,600 years ago that God's doing all this stuff and Babylonian captivity and all that kind of stuff. Okay, so it's been 2,600 years. God said, I'm going to restore the fortunes of Israel and Judah. I'm going to bring them back to their land. And when Jesus comes back, he's going to rule over them and be in Jerusalem on David's throne. He said all that. Is there any reason not to believe it just because it hasn't happened yet? None whatsoever. Because the word of God is true. The people who say he has said it, but he didn't do it are mired in time because they're time-bound creatures who look around in the life that they are living right now on terrestrial planet Earth, and events seem to be other than what the Bible said. The Bible said it's going to happen. They don't witness it happening, and because their entire sense of reality is wrapped up in their own observation and lifetime, they say, well, then I will sit as judge on the Bible, and the Bible's not true because I haven't observed it to be true. But faith says, if God said it, if God promised it, it has to be true, and it has to happen. And as sure as the return of Christ is, so is the return of Israel. Because we all know it can't be until Christ comes back that he sits on the throne of David and that he reestablishes Israel and that he brings about the tribulation, the final punishment, the time of Jacob's trouble. He's going to bring all that about. He's going to do all that. We know that when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is going to be saved. We know this because the Bible says it. We just haven't observed it yet. But that doesn't make it any less true. If I say, here, I'll give you one more example. You may not even need this example. You may already be tracking completely with what I've said. But if I say to Carol, who's sitting there in the back, we're going to get together next month and have lunch. Okay, so two weeks from now, it turns out that we still haven't had lunch. Does that mean we're not going to? Everybody observing it would say, no, they didn't do it. Jim said they were going to do it. They didn't do it. So, oh, he didn't mean Carol. When he said Carol, we're going to have lunch, he meant somebody else. He meant Jennifer. He said Carol, but he meant Jennifer. He said Israel, but he meant the church. That's, that's what he meant. Mm -hmm. Do you see how silly that logic is? Mm -hmm. We know it's the word of God. We know it's a promise. We know it's founded on his sovereignty and on his unchanging will and desire and decree and his control of human life on planet Earth. So it's going to happen, and it's going to happen when Christ returns, when Christ comes to take his bride, the church, to himself, and then he's going to sit on the throne of David, he's going to establish the kingdom, and he's going to regather all of Israel. These things are promised, and they're going to happen. And there's no other way to understand them biblically. For thus says the Lord, if my covenant for day and night does not stand, and these fixed patterns of heaven and earth I have not established, then I would reject the descendants of Jacob and David my servant not taking from his descendants rulers over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Notice right there, by the way, last thing. I keep saying last thing. I promise that this is the last thing. 
That's a working definition for who Israel is right there. Who are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? Israel. House of Israel, house of Judah are the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It says so right there. And yet, I can find, without even trying, people who will say, Israel's the church, who are not descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. How does that work? Again, these are just assumptions that are not based in a solid biblical understanding. He's going to be the ruler over the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. I will restore their fortunes, and I will have mercy on them. Any questions about that? Only question is a lot of times I find myself uh, just using a lot of Christian terminology that I think we kind of mistakenly use Mm -hmm. a lot of times. So when I think of the new covenant, I think it is a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. How would you accurately describe us as the Gentiles, our relationship to that new covenant? I think that's why the language in the New Testament, when, when Paul talks about Gentiles, he talks about adoption into the family so that we're brought into the promises of the new covenant. And because all the way back to the Abrahamic covenant, through your descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. So there is the prediction of the Gentiles coming in. Now, we can't enter, despite what so many in the church seem to think, we can't enter into relationship with God via the old covenant. It was never made with us. We weren't at Mount Sinai. It's not our covenant. And yet there are plenty of preachers thundering down from their pulpits telling people to follow the law. And they're reading the law, whether it's just something as simple as tithing or whether it's saying follow the Ten Commandments or whatever else. They're putting the law onto people who were never under that law, that covenant. The only covenant through which we can enter into relationship with God has to be the new covenant in the blood of Christ. And so Paul, when he went to the Gentiles then argued that their faith in Christ was sufficient to get them in relationship with God. So our inclusion, our adoption into the family of God via the covenant in Christ's blood through the sacrifice of Christ, as wonderful and glorious and satisfying and fulfilling as that is, there are far too many people who think that that then does away with the fact that the new covenant belongs to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So yes, we're brought in, but that's, I think, why Paul sets up that chronology where he says, after the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. Yeah, so right now, God's building his church that belongs to his son, the bride of Christ, the body of Christ. Right now, he's doing that, and he's got a definite number. He knows who they are. They're the elect. He must know what the number is. And when the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, then all Israel is saved. Because that's exactly what the prophets have all been prophesying. So, did that sort of answer your question? Yeah. Yeah, okay. That's the only way that we can approach God is through the the blood of Christ, which he says is the blood of the new covenant. So in that way, I have to say that we're entering through that covenant, the only covenant that we have. But I would not say that the church is fully satisfactorily immersed in the new covenant because we just read nobody will have to say, know the Lord, because they're all going to know me from the greatest to the least. Well, then I'm out of a job. We're still evangelizing. We're still calling people to be reconciled to their God. We're still teaching about the things of God, know the Lord. So I, I could not argue that the church being in the new covenant fully satisfies the new covenant. This is just God doing what he said to Abraham he would do among the Gentiles, but it in no way eliminates or negates or pairs down the promises he made to Israel and Judah, which have to come true too. It's just that a lot of times, I think I ran into this also when we were going to First Peter in the men's group, there's like a, a lot of terminology we were kind of using, think, and you kind of correct us a little bit. Well, you know, we're talking about Israel here. It's, it's yeah. more than a little bit. <laughs> well, you know, we just—it's just that it's that Christian terminology we all kind of pass around to the church, and right, you know. And so when I think New Covenant, I'm like, oh yeah, the New Covenant we have with Christ, and well, it's not technically 
you know, like you were kind of bringing up at the very beginning. It's not really a new covenant to me. I mean, it's not like I had an old covenant, now I'm in this new covenant. Right. It's, it's your only covenant. Israel yeah. I happen to be adopted into. That's exactly right. Anything else? Are we fully convinced? I just don't know how it can be any other way. All right, say goodbye to the internet congregation. Bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace message. We welcome your feedback and encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.